Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the second session of From Hunter to Hellmand, Military Medicine Then and Now. Uh, it's my enormous pleasure to introduce uh, Sir Barry Jackson, distinguished former president of this college, to speak on a topic on which he is an acknowledged expert, medicine and surgery in the Crimea. Barry. Thank you, John. Uh, I have to start by making an apology. I, I am suffering from the aftermath of an extremely heavy cold, and if I get uh, a fit of coughing whilst I'm talking, please excuse me. Um, yesterday was pretty bad, but today so far it's been all right, but I have got a fisherman's friend in my pocket if there is any uh, disaster. Now, um, to cover the... Um, Crimean war medicine and surgery in half an hour is a pretty daunting task because it, there are so many aspects that one could address. But nevertheless, I will do my best and see what we can do. The Crimean War took place in the mid-1850s, as you all know. Uh, and at that time, medicine was extremely limited. Um, it was mainly tender loving care. There were few drugs that were of any value. Digitalis was one. Opium, of course, and morphine was another. Quinine for malaria was well known, but it was mainly tender loving care, bleeding, uh, potions of varying sorts, of none of which had any uh, therapeutic effect, uh, and um, uh, uh, enemas and uh, purgatives. So pretty basic medicine. Now, surgery was hardly any better at all. Because although anesthesia had been introduced a few years earlier in 1846, uh, it was not widely used, uh, certainly in the British Army at the time, by the army surgeons. Uh, and it had made no impact whatever on the range of surgery that was being carried out at that time. Uh, it, you, could, uh, you didn't have to operate as fast as you used to be able to under anesthetic, but the range of surgical procedures was really identical to what it was pre-anesthesia. And it wasn't until Lister came along with his uh, germ theory of antisepsis and the importance of uh, sterilization that surgery really transformed. And as you can see from the date on this slide, Lister was after the Crimean War. So surgery and medicine at this time was, were very, very primitive. Now, what about the Crimean War? Well, I'm not going to get, talk to you very much about the war itself. I shall mention the three major battles and the siege, but I'm not going to go into it in detail. That might come up in the uh, questioning. But the British, it was a disastrous war in terms of uh, both the British army and the French army, which uh, together with Britain were the allies who attacked Russia. And it was also a disaster for Russia. And it was a disaster because A, the death rate, as you can see on this slide, was extremely high, and the, I show you the uh, French statistics as well for completeness. The Russian statistics we don't know, uh, there are no records of what went on in Sevastopol at the time, but it is widely believed that the statistics for the Russian side were vastly worse than for either the French or the uh, British in terms of um, uh, injuries and disease and mortality. However, it was a war of various firsts. 
It had five firsts. War photography was the first time uh, it would have been used. Um, and <clears throat> you can see up on the left of this slide one of the original uh, photographs showing the tented, in the early days of the war, showing the tented, <coughs> tented um, uh, camp. There were uh, both British and French photographers there. And the best British known photographer was Roger Fenton, who came back and produced a very large number of, of um, uh, photographs. Excuse me. <coughs> I'm sorry. There was live war reporting. William Howard Russell, as you can see on the slide in the middle, was out there reporting for the Times newspaper. <coughs> and he was. Um, a strange man. He, he had a very successful career, but uh, he has been described, and I quote from one contemporary description, a vulgar low Irishman who sings a good song, drinks anyone's brandy, <coughs> and smokes as many cigars as a jolly good fellow. <coughs> Lord Raglan said that he was a uh, a blackguard and was blacklisted and advised, advised the officers uh, not to speak to him. So that was William Hus Russell. The electric telegraph was in use, and this was how he was able to get his transmissions back to the UK so rapidly. It was the first tactical use of a railway in the latter stages of the war, and of course the Victoria Cross emanates from the Crimean War. Now what about <coughs> the war itself? Well, the, it starts really over here, uh, in the Varna area. The, uh, the, the Allies, the French and the British, uh, had decided to uh, declare war against Russia, and they were going to invade Russia uh, at the, in terms of the Crimea uh, and uh, take the port of Sevastopol. It's actually spelt incorrectly on that slide, I note. It should be a V there, Sevastopol, rather than Sevastopol. Uh, and uh, they had to sail out there. The war was declared in March 1854, but it was um, September before they actually made the invasion. Uh, they came up through the, uh, the Mediterranean, through the Dardanelles, uh, uh, and uh, they were briefly there uh, in uh, Istanbul, and you notice Scutari just opposite, and then they moved up the Black Sea to Varna, and they camped there for several weeks prior to the invasion in September of 1854 into Sebastopol. Now, the problem was that they hadn't taken into account the con climatic conditions, uh, and of course, bacteriology, as we now know it, was completely unknown. And so infected water was widely drunk, and what happened uh, over here, there was an enormous amount of uh, diarrheal disease. There was quite a lot, there was a big cholera outbreak as well, uh, and the British and Allied troops became seriously weakened. A lot of them died, but uh, uh, those that survived uh, were ser ser seriously weakened uh, by the diarrhea and lack of proper medical attention uh, when the invasion took place across here, uh, to, uh, just above north of uh, Sevastopol. Uh, so there was a weakened, ill force that started uh, the invasion and the, uh, and the, and the fighting. Now, the first battle there was the Battle of Alma. Uh, as the troops 
weakened by diarrhea, drenched by rain, which was uh, heavily for the first 24 hours when they landed, and then blazing heat as they walked to take their positions in Balaclava, where the British made their base. And I'm going to speak only now from now on of the British. I'm not going to touch the French at all. The Battle of the Alma was against uh, the Russians who were on a hill, as you can see in the background here of this slide from the Illustrated London News of the time. Uh, the generals on the horseback to the right of the slide and the serried ranks of the uh, uh, British on this slide, the French were on the right flank going up into a sea of gunfire. There was a, a, in mayhem a lot of injury. It lasted only a few hours, four hours, five hours perhaps, but there was a lot of bullet wounds, there was a lot of um, mayhem. There was, as you can see at the bottom, quite a number of wounded and those killed. Now the aftermath, this was September the 25th, that evening uh, the dead, the dying and the wounded had to be collected from the battlefield and they were there in their hundreds, uh, if not thousands, as you can see. Amputations were to a penny. There were an enormous number of amputations done on the field in those primitive conditions and most of which uh, became infected. The amputations were perhaps even worse when you consider that the British Army were under the instruction for severe injury not to use anaesthesia. Dr. John Hall, who was the commanding medical man out in the Crimea at the time, said, and this was an order in September 1854, Dr. Hall takes this opportunity of cautioning medical officers against the use of chloroform in the severe shock of gunshot wounds, as he thinks very few will survive if it is used. However barbarous it may appear, the smart of the knife is a powerful stimulant, and it is much better to hear a man bawl lustily than to see him sink silently into his grave. Uh, barbaric by today's standards. Um, and in fact, not only was that instruction, there was no chloroform in any case on that very first battle, or very little if any, uh, because the supplies coming along with the invading army were behind the, uh, the army. They were still on board the ships, many of them in the Black Sea. So it was a mayhem and catastrophe. But nevertheless, the, uh, the, the, the operations took place. The wounded were transported to uh, sailing vessels uh, and they were sailed across the Black Sea to the big barrack hospital in, in uh, Scutari, uh, which is where, of course, Florence Nightingale made her name, as no, everyone in this room will know. The conditions on board these sailing ships were absolutely frightful. Um, and here is, uh, this, here is Scutari, which is uh, where they were going, which is a very well-known image. The statistics were just absolutely terrible. Ten ships uh, in just four days, as you can see after that Battle of Alma, 3,000-odd patients, over 1,000 wounded, 12% died on the voyage, and the total admissions to all hospitals during that seminar were 5,500. They weren't all going to Scutari, um, to um, the Barrack Hospital. There were other hospitals in uh, Scutari, the, the, um, but Scut the Barrack Hospital was the big one. Of course, not all these were wounded on board these ships. Many of them were soldiers prostrate with dysentery and diarrhea and other conditions 
uh, uh, malnutrition, terrible statistics, and very little uh, in the way of treatment. William Reynolds, a surgeon on one of these uh, ships called the Colombo, wrote home in late 1854, published in the Lancet, a letter saying, fancy about 650 wounded officers and men on board our ship and only three doctors to attend them. I assure you we were working all day and night, not even time to sit down to dinner, nothing but cutting off arms and legs all day long. I had more operations during that time than any London surgeon in a 12 months. And of course, most of the army surgeons in these early days of the war were very inexperienced in operating. Although they were called surgeons, they had very little surgical experience. Florence Nightingale, of course, received them in the Barrack Hospital. And this is a well-known painting of, by Jerry Barrett that uh, many of you, I'm sure, will be familiar with, of Florence Nightingale receiving the injured. Now we come to the next battle of Balaclava. This is where the charge of the Light Brigade took place, as well as the charge of the Heavy Brigade, uh, and also the Thin Red Line, which some of you will know about. It was a, 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 bat, a short battle in October. Um, the injuries were gunshot, of course, but they were also of saber and of lance. So they were uh, penetrating injuries with blade as well as with bullet. The Battle of Inkerman followed in the November, uh, and this was the worst of the three land battles in terms of casualties, as you can see here. And I show you a blacked out slide because it took place in thick fog, and there is absolutely no illustrations available of the Battle of Inkerman. So um, there are some statistics again in that very early couple of months uh, at the beginning of the war, huge number of admissions to the hospitals in Scutari, mainly to the Barrack Hospital. Uh, and uh, on the 18th of November, 3,300 uh, in wards, including 1958 in the Barrack Hospital. Now, after those three battles, all took place within a couple of months of the, of the invasion in the September, it then became a long drawn out siege of the Battle of Sevastopol to try and take Sevastopol. The Allies on one side, the Russians hold up in Sevastopol, and they were lobbing mortars and shells, uh, and um, various sorties went to and fro from Sevastopol, you see in the distance here, and you see the mortars in the front. This is a map showing, and I think I can show you with the, I got the pointer here. This was the uh, barricade all the way around Sebastopol, the fortification that took place all the way around. Sebastopol was here. The French were on the right flank, uh, the left flank as we uh, look at it here. The Brits in the red here were in the middle, and there were French again on the right flank. And we were particularly concerned with trying to breach this uh, barricade here, particularly the place called the Redan, but also uh, uh, further along and round. Uh, and the Malakoff here also we got involved with, whereas the French were more involved with breaching the barricades on that side of the wall. In between attacks, uh, in between uh, lobbying uh, these uh, mortars and such like across, there was a white flag put up, and you can see a white flag here, 
another one on the hill there, and then the troops would come out and they would rescue their injured and those that were dying on the battlefield. These people down here are sailors. There was quite a naval presence, which is not widely recognized in the Crimean War, uh, and they acted as stretcher bearers quite a lot of the time. But you can see here the soldiers still dressed up in these early days of the war in their uniforms, uh, where before the, uh, the order came that they could dress down, as it were. But uh, having said that, there was uh, long periods of nothing happening at all. And here you see a photograph by one of the photographers showing uh, someone uh, asleep here, or seemingly asleep, and a lookout here and someone else dozing off. <coughs> I might say that if this guy really was asleep, he was, uh, could be punished by 50 lashes of the cat for falling asleep on sentry duty. And there were quite a number of instances of people being lashed uh, in the Crimean War for breach of conduct. The injuries that took place <coughs> during this siege tended to be fragments of flying stone. You can see the barricades here that have been put up. Well, if they were hit by a shell, lots and lots of splinters went up and down and they were, were, were caught uh, on the face and the thorax. There was quite a lot of burn injury from exploding uh, ammunition. Uh, but, uh, and of course, if a shell went off nearby, if you weren't under protection, you could have an arm blown off. Uh, cannons were used, cannonballs, and there are some frightful stories uh, of individual patients receiving cannonball injury, which one would take an arm off, but miss the thorax and the trunk completely. Another one uh, records having a, a spent cannonball right on its last legs, impacting his buttock, and uh, other surgeons had to cut it out of the buttock. The surgery was therefore, uh, apart from amputations, was searching for bullets with bullet extractors uh, and dressing of wounds and uh, such like. Lots of uh, uh, fomentations as well. The death rate was high. You see 20,000. These figures are taken from the official statistics of the Crimean War, two-volume uh, history of the medical and surgical services of the Crimean War. But of course, they almost certainly wildly underestimate the true numbers. Because in the first few weeks of the war, <coughs> accurate statistics were not kept, and they were guesses. And it was only towards, well, after Christmas, I suppose, uh, of 1854 onwards, that accurate statistics were actually combed. But the importance of this slide, of course, is, is to show, if I go back, that the, uh, sorry, uh, that the, um, uh, sorry, I'm on the wrong slide, that one, is that we've got more, vastly more from disease <laughs> dying <coughs> than from uh, wounds or killed in action. <coughs> and uh, that is a regular feature of war until quite recently. The uh, figures here, you can see dysentery and diarrhea were very high, cholera was high, fever was high, pneumonia, <coughs> and there were other things such as frostbite and scurvy. Although the treatment of scurvy by lime juice and orange juice and lemon juice is well known, there was a shortage of supplies in those early days of the war, and quite a number of people got scurvy. Uh, and similarly, despite quinine, they got malaria as well. 
And they also got frostbite. Now you might wonder about uh, uh, frostbite, but I'll come back to that, just show you the statistics for dysentery, huge numbers. You see at the bottom of the slide, 55,000 total admissions and an 11% mortality. <coughs> Excuse me again, which is really quite high. There was a very cold snap in the December of that first uh, invasion in 1854. This is an illustration by one of the war artists that was out there, Simpson, and you can see somebody on uh, sentry duty here, uh, and that led to trench foot and frostbite. And you can see here that in that January of 1855, there were 1,400 uh, admissions with frostbite, <coughs> and there was a 20% death rate, largely after amputation of uh, hands, fingers, toes, feet, and infection settling in, because so many of the wounds became infected because the science of bacteriology was completely unknown and sterility was not realized as being an important part of a post-operative phase. There was also venereal disease, which is often glossed over and forgotten about, but there were no less than 37 deaths from venereal disease and quite a lot of admissions, as you can see. Again, typical of wars anywhere. Now, what happened to all these uh, patients that were uh, getting diseases of diarrhea and cholera and such like and all were injured or had amputations? Well, they were admitted uh, after the first battle when there was no, no facility for uh, uh, inpatient treatment at all, there were quickly made um, uh, regimental uh, camp hospitals on the field of battle, and this is a diagram showing one such. You can see here marquee, an operating marquee here, and I think somewhere here, death hut down there. And this is a sketch. It's not, it's uh, uh, September uh, 1854 Sebastopol. But later in the war, hospitals were created in the Crimea. This is the general hospital of 450 beds, which was mainly a medical admission uh, hospital. And um, up here, on the heights up here, uh, just below this old Genoan fort, there was the uh, Castle Hospital. And this is a photograph by one of the war photographers showing the huts of the castle hospital uh, with the Black Sea on the left here and Balaclava you can just see here on the right, the harbour of Balaclava. But of course you can see that it's quite a high, uh, you've got to move up quite a hill to get there and so there were taken from the illustrated London News a succession of uh, uh, convoys, caravans going up uh, like this, taking the uh, injured to the castle hospital, which was mainly a surgical hospital. When they got there, of course, they were quite well looked after and they had beautiful views looking out over the Black Sea, as you can see them relaxing here, again from the illustrated London News. There were other hospitals outside of the Scutari area. There was one at a place called Abydos, which was further down the Dardanelles, 
and uh, Smyrna also opened one down in Turkey in, in February 1855, but neither of these two hospitals really played any major part in the war at all because they were too far distant from the scene of action in the Crimea. And there was the famous Renkoy Hospital that opened late in the war, in October 1854, which really, again, played no part in the war, but is well known because it was a temporary hospital designed by Isambard Brunel and went out in packages and was, uh, there's quite a lot written about it as an interesting engineering feat of putting up a, a hospital uh, prefabricated uh, by Brunel. Most of the injuries went to, uh, and disease, went to the Barrack Hospital, which you see here in a contemporary watercolour. Uh, and, of course, Florence Nightingale was there with her team of nurses. I'm saying nothing more about Florence Nightingale. That's a different story completely. Mrs. Mary Seacole, whom you see on the right here, was not uh, at Scutari because uh, she was not acceptable to Florence Nightingale, for whatever reason. She was in the Crimea itself. And she set up uh, a, uh, a hotel, she called it, for the uh, men in the front, actually, at the, in the Crimea, near to Bal Balaclava. She was not a nurse. She uh, was called a doctress. Now, what a doctress is, I haven't the faintest idea. And there's a considerable degree of uncertainty by medical historians as to what her role actually was, apart from a hotelier. In the, uh, in the Crimean War, but having said that, she is now being, uh, uh, she's subject to uh, a resurgence of interest in her, and I'm sure you've read quite a lot about her recently in the papers, and her, advent her autobiography has been published, uh, and there's going to be a statue uh, erected to her later uh, next year, I think, in 2015. There were also many other nurses out there, uh, and this is just one, Sarah Ann Turret, and she wrote home quite a lot of interesting material, uh, but I won't go further into her history. I think it's terrifically important that we don't forget the so-called enemy, because uh, the Russians, as I said right at the beginning, suffered tremendous losses. Uh, Leo Tolstoy was a soldier in the Crimean War and wrote a most fascinating series of sketches which you can buy in Penguin Classics. I do commend that book to any of you to read what it was like on the Russian side, which was quite frightful. Um, and inside the, that barricade that I showed you, towards the end, it became mayhem. I mean, the conditions in Sevastopol were absolutely indescribably awful. Uh, and this is an image from uh, uh, towards the end of the war showing uh, some aspects of the, uh, of the damage that was sustained. Uh, and this slide is taken from the panorama. Those of you, I know that there are some in the audience that have been out to the Crimea uh, in recent years with one of the battlefield tours. You probably almost certainly went to see the panorama in Sevastopol of the entire war, which is absolutely a, a must if you're visiting Sevastopol. And this is taken from it showing uh, stretcher bearers bringing in the wounded. But uh, from the surgical point of view, <coughs> uh, there was uh, a lot of surgery performed, and particularly by this man that's depicted here on this slide, looking a bit old and grisly, but perhaps he's better seen in this slide when he was a younger man, uh, Nikolai Pirogov, who was quite the most uh, advanced surgeon of his day. He introduced triage, which was unknown on the uh, British side, 
uh, he introduced new techniques of amputation and are still to this day a Pirikov's operation on the ankle, which is sometimes, but not often, practiced, I understand. Uh, and he was uh, very important. Now, the British medical officers were, in the first instance, very largely inexperienced. Uh, they were in the army already. They'd had very little exposure, well, no exposure to wartime conditions, but very little exposure to serious trauma. They'd had little operative experience. <clears throat> As the war progressed, there were volunteers that came forward in quite abundance, some of whom have had a great deal more experience. And then towards the end, there were civilian consultants appointed by the consultant, of whom probably, the, as far as this college is concerned, the best known was Spencer Wells, of uh, Spencer Wells' artery forceps fame, who later became a president of this college. And he was posted to the uh, hospital at Rencoy, which I showed you, and of course did absolutely nothing there at all during his sojourn. 52 of them died, but all of disease. None of them were wounded, none of them were killed, and three of these British medical officers were, were awarded Victoria Crosses, which is tremendous. Of the 12,094 wounded in the war, 55% returned to duty, and 30% uh, were invaded, invalided home. But 55% got back to duty, which I think is an enormous tribute to the British uh, medical officers that were serving out there with such little experience and uh, with a great deal of um, bureaucracy by the, uh, those in charge of the war at the time. Uh, one, of one of those that was wounded was uh, this gentleman here, a photograph taken uh, in 1855 at Fort Pitt Hospital, which was the Army Hospital in Chatham, uh, of Thomas Walker, of the 95th Rifles, and he was invalided out after receiving a head injury at uh, Inkerman. And I finish my 30 minutes with this man. And why do I choose him particularly when I could have chosen any others? The answer is seen here in this watercolor of uh, Private Thomas Walker by Thomas Wood uh, making a quilt. And that painting is in the Hunterian Museum upstairs. And those of you who visited the exhibition in the Quist Gallery would have walked right past it as you went in uh, to that uh, gallery to see the Tonks pastels. Uh, Thomas Walker, uh, now of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. My 30 minutes is up. Questions? <laughs> questions. Yes, I can take questions. I'm all right, but I... It's just... Uh, well, thank you very much, Barry. Well, who's going to start? <laughs> yes, I would. There we go. Uh, Thomas Walker. Yes. Yes. I think it is true. I think that the, what, there, there was some very primitive, uh, what we would now call neurosurgery practice. I mean, trephination was practiced not often out there. Uh, most of those who were trephined died, but some survived. So I think, uh, I think I have read somewhere that he did have some sort of plate put in his head, and he clearly did survive by virtue of having his portrait painted uh, in that way. But I can't give you the nuts and bolts of it. Maybe somebody else in the audience can. 
I don't know. No. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, Brunel showed that you could transport a, a whole hospital of, I've forgotten the number of beds and huts that there were, and put them up and run it. Uh, and I've seen, and I could have shown you, but I've show, I had been confined to 30 minutes. So there are lots of pictures uh, uh, of the inside showing it fully equipped with an operating theater and beds and such like. Uh, and that was put up in next to no time. The, what's going on in Sierra Leone, I've, I don't know, but I mean, it's in Afghanistan, there were all sorts of things put up very quickly, and there are people in the audience I know that have been out to Camp Bastion in Afghanistan and seen some of the, some of the work that was done out there. <coughs> so I think w hospitals can be put up very quickly if there's a mind to do so. Uh, but I would guess that they would probably be rather more, um, they would be different, let me put it that way, to the one that Brunel designed in the 1850s. Question over there. Microphone. Uh, could you expand on the use of anesthesia during the Crimea? Because ether and chloroform were fairly well established in civilian practice at yes. that time. Yeah. It was, it was principally in the first battle of Alma that uh, a, lot of a, a lot of surgery was performed, amputation surgery, <coughs> without anesthesia. Uh, Later in the war, the, the it was chloroform rather than ether. <coughs> Later in the war, the supplies of chloroform, which had been, uh, which were on the transport ships, <coughs> did catch up with the uh, army medical officers. <coughs> Excuse me, did catch up with the army medical officers, and it was largely used, but it wasn't exclusively used. And very often, the reason for that, apart from Sir John Hall's uh, bizarre instruction, which was countermanded, I might say, later in the war, uh, was that the patients themselves requested not to have anesthesia. And there are some remarkable accounts of individual soldiers asking to have uh, an amputation performed without anesthetic. Uh, and I mean, it's mind-boggling to us today. I mean, I just can't imagine anything more dreadful, excruciating pain, but that was the patient's wish. Uh, and so, it, it, although it was w widely was used, it wasn't exclusively used throughout the war. And of course, it wasn't used, or virtually not at all, on that first evening or the next day uh, of September 25, 1854. <coughs> Mike, microphone. Can you get the mic? Yeah. I think it's fine. No, no, no. They can't hear behind. Yeah. I think the story that Eunesis believe is that the Russians used nitrous oxide and ether, and we used chloroform which is a really bad anaesthetic to use if you've lost a lot of blood. We, 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 that, well, chloroform is bad if you've lost a lot of blood. Correct, we did use chloroform. That was, that was the anaesthetic of choice for the army at that time. <coughs> I don't know what the Russians used, and if they, they may have used nitrous oxide, I, I just don't know. I've not read anything about the, uh, the Russian use of anaesthesia. Most of us in the history of anaesthesia society think the Russians used nitrous oxide and ether. 
Right, well... I may I'm, be wrong. I'm, well, we may, may all be you, wrong. You may be right. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. But and I do know that, the, the, that uh, ether was not used, as far as I'm aware, uh, on the British side or, well, or the French. It was chloroform. We had this Scottish obsession with chloroform. Um, but the Germans and the Americans abandoned chloroform very early. Yeah. Question over there. You mentioned some very um, facial injuries. Yes. Crime and Warfield. Do we know any details about those, and were there any early attempts at reconstructive surgery? At as far time? as I know, no. I think the reconstructive aspects came later, uh, and of course there's a lot about that upstairs. <coughs> um, there were facial injuries. Uh, I'm not. Um, I imagine that some of the fatal injury, facial injuries would have been as horrific as some of those Tonks pastels that most of you have been looking at or seen. Uh, and, um, but I, I'm not, I can't give you an, a specific instance of that. I mean, the, the likelihood is if they received an injury of that magnitude, they would die, as simple as that, and they would probably uh, record it as a death. <coughs> As far as I'm aware, the first records of facial reconstruction were from the American Civil War, when some work was done by Gurdon Buck, and some photographs of those uh, survive. But I have to say that the results were absolutely awful. Right. Well, that's very interesting. I didn't know that. Question at the back there. Yeah. Um, so, Barry, um, if I can just make mention of one of the Victoria Cross, which is relevant to this establishment, not a medical Victoria Cross, but Sergeant Moynihan of the infantry. <laughs> yes. Who, uh, of course, who's, was his, his father, I think, wasn't it, Barclay Moynihan? Yes. Was awarded the Victoria Cross for the attack on, um, on Sabastopol. Sergeant Moynihan was, um, was not, a, not a doctor. He was uh, a, an ordinary serving surgeon, and he did receive the Victoria Cross for services uh, of enormous bravery. Uh, and uh, his father was Barclay. Uh, he was the father of Barclay Moynihan, I think is the way it goes. So that if he had been killed, Barclay Moynihan, ex-president of this college, would not have seen the light of day. Thank you very much, Barry. You've right answered all your questions. Okay. Thank you very much. Right, thank you. Our next speaker, and starting five minutes early, is Professor Christine Hallett, who's going to tell us about nurses and wound sepsis in the First World War. Thank you very much, and apologies, I've got a cough as well. Um, Hopefully I won't croak too much. Uh, is that? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> is the sound okay at the back? Is the microphone in about the right place? Yeah, okay. Thank you very much um, to the Royal College of Surgeons for this invitation. I'm very honored to be speaking at this conference. Um, and I'm gonna talk about nurses and wound sepsis, uh, specifically in the First World War. And warfare has typically been associated with medical advance. And such advance has frequently been linked to the need to respond to unexpected crises. 
The military medical services were faced with a number of such challenges during the First World War. Significant amongst these was the need to handle large rushes of severely traumatized casualties, an unexpectedly high number of severe, life-threatening anaerobic wound infections on the Western Front, and the dilemma posed by infectious diseases such as typhoid fever on all fronts. These challenges were met by an emphasis on the rational organization of medical services, the rapid movement of casualties down the line, and scientific and technological advance. A number of medical historians have focused on specific medical innovations, such as blood transfusion, surgical advances, particularly in the realm of wound care, and the control of infectious diseases. Also, they've concentrated on efforts to rehabilitate disabled veterans and have explored the attempts of the military medical services to understand and provide a coherent response to the emotional trauma of war. Although a number of recent studies have focused on the organization of military nursing during the First World War and on the experiences of nurses themselves, very few have attempted to place nurses at the center of debates about clinical practice and innovation. This paper focuses on the way in which nurses' writings, particularly those published by the British Journal of Nursing, offered an opportunity for professional nurses to familiarize themselves with scientific knowledge and to assimilate that knowledge into their practice. It examines in particular nurses' written responses to treatments for trauma and wound infection on the Western Front. And here is an image of a professional nurse. This is Mabel Pierce, who was a fully trained professional nurse with the Territorial Force Nursing Service. And just to complement that image, here's an image of a VAD, a volunteer nurse's aide. And if we're talking about challenges on all fronts in the First World War, one of the main challenges for professional nurses was the fact that most of the people working with them, many of the people working with them and assisting them, only had about six months apprenticeship training and four certificates under their belt. And these would have been the VADs. It's one of the myths of the First World War that there was great tension and dispute between nurses and VADs. In fact, what I found is that they worked very well together and uh, the nurses supervised the VADs very carefully. The British Journal of Nursing adopted three strategies to facilitate the presentation of medical knowledge to nurses. Firstly, it presented long excerpts from medical journals, sometimes accompanied by brief editorial comments. So it just took out long excerpts from uh, articles within medical journals and reproduced them. Secondly, it invited medical authors to contribute pieces, giving advice to nurses on how medical innovation might be implemented. And thirdly, it provided opportunities for nurses to write essays and articles on specific medical scientific topics. So what it often did was um, offer a prize to the best essay on a particular topic. Mark Harrison has shown that the medical profession had great difficulty in tackling the severe anaerobic wound infections that were encountered on the heavily fertilized fields of France and Flanders during the early months of the First World War. Articles on the treatment of wounds began to appear with considerable frequency in The Lancet during the late autumn of 1914. This focus was then mirrored by a rapid increase in the number of articles on wounds extracted from medical writings or medical presentations and published by all three of the main British nursing journals during those last four months of 1914. 
By December 1914, physicians were realising that, well, had long realised, that gas gangrene infections were a much more serious problem than had hitherto been recognised. The British Journal of Nursing quoted extracts from a paper by Sir Anthony Bowlby and Sir Sidney Rowlands, who had published their work in the British Medical Journal. The editors of the British Journal of Nursing, the BJN, pointed out that it was important for nurses to familiarise themselves with the appearance of a gangrenous wound, so that they could more rapidly report the onset of gangrene to their medical colleagues and could prompt rapid surgical intervention. They clearly anticipated that by including such material in the pages of the BJN, they would ensure that it found its way into practice in military hospitals, both in Britain and close to the front lines, particularly on the Western Front. And indeed, copies of the BJN did find its way to all war fronts. It was around the time of the publication of Bowlby and Rowland's article that both doctors and nurses began to change their views on the use of antiseptics. And these were rapidly reintroduced into practice. Among the most frequently used antiseptics, which were applied to wounds to directly kill invading microbes, were iodoform, flavin, hydrogen peroxide, perchloride of mercury, and hypochlorous acid. In November 1914, Ethel Gordon Fenwick, the editor of the BJN, reproduced a paper which had been read by Watson Chain to the Medical Society of London and then had subsequently been published in the British Medical Journal. So it was first presented then published in the BMJ, and then published again in the BJN. And uh, Ethel Gordon Fenwick, I think, particularly liked this article and the way um, Watson Chain was expressing himself. Oh, sorry, this is a, an image of um, surgical procedure, obviously, in um, a base hospital. So Watson Chain said, some surgeons seem to take a particular pride in emphasising their contempt for antiseptics and the extreme simplicity of their methods. A surgeon comes to an operation and finds a dish containing some fluid. He asks what that is. And the nurse, who's been carefully trained in real aseptic work, says in fear and trembling, we have some stereotyping here, that is carbolic lotion for your instruments. It is most instructive to see the look of contempt on the surgeon's face as he says, carbolic lotion? Who on earth uses antiseptics nowadays? I thought that no one out of an asylum even thought of, of them. Take it away and bring me a bowl of boiled water. And uh, Watson Chain's comment on this is that the futility and littleness of it all makes him sick. I think he's uh, enjoy enjoying a moment of rhetoric, actually, in this uh, presentation. Fenwick introduced medical knowledge into the pages of her nursing journal by inviting doctors to write pieces pitched deliberately to the needs and requirements of practising nurses. One of her favourite medical authors was the retired Cambridge-educated Dr. Nivet Gordon, who'd held a number of important clinical and teaching positions during the early years of the 20th century. He'd been medical superintendent of the City of Manchester Fever Hospital, lecturer on infectious diseases in Queen's College, Cambridge, and later lecturer on infectious diseases at the University of Manchester. And I imagine uh, Ethel Gordon Fenwick may well have met him in Manchester and uh, knew him quite well. Nivet Gordon authored pieces for the BJN on a range of subjects over a period of about 16 years. And soon after the outbreak of war, Fenwick invited him to comment on the significance of the war for nursing work. One of his main foci was wound infection, and he recommended a number of ways 
in which nurses could influence wound healing by, quote, washing and dressing the wound, opening up pockets of pus, assisting the patient by such measures of fomentations which stimulate the leukocytes and relieve pain, or we can sometimes kill some of the microbes in a wound by the application of disinfectant solutions. Nivet Gordon emphasised the role of the nurse in strengthening the general constitution of the patient to allow the body to produce a better defence against the infective microorganism. This was achieved, he said, by good food and, quote, skillful general nursing, along with tepid sponging to reduce an excessively high temperature. And he added that the most important factor in the later stage is careful, untiring, intelligent nursing in healthy surroundings. And it is most important to keep the patient quiet and to give him plenty of fresh air. It's easy to see why Fenwick was keen to invite this particular medical author to contribute to her journal. His references to skillful general nursing, to careful, untiring, intelligent nursing, indicate that he recognised the significance of, even though he may not have fully understood those many actions taken by nurses to keep a patient clean, well-nourished, calm and comfortable during a serious illness or infection. His text presented scientific knowledge which could be of use in nursing practice. A nurse called Gladys Tatham won a BJN competition in the summer of 1914 for her paper, answering the question, what precautions may be adopted to minimize the danger to the patient in the case of a wound which has been exposed to infection? Tatham recommended that a dressing of hydrogen peroxide should be kept in contact with the wound for about five minutes before redressing with an aseptic gauze, wool, and a bandage. She went on to describe the battle which took place within the body of the wounded soldier between the infective microorganisms and the leukocytes, pointing out that resistance can be lowered by poor general physical and mental health. And here's an image of um, a base hospital in northern France. This is actually the Sugar Sheds, uh, a converted warehouse, looking incredibly orderly and neat, uh, with no hint of, kind of what's actually going on under the bandages there. What Gladys Tatham said was... To prevent these untoward results, meaning the spread of wound infection, we must do everything in our power to increase the resistance of the patient. He must have fresh air, warmth, light, nourishing food, plenty of water to drink, clean surroundings, and intelligent nursing. Instructions that um, really haven't changed, um, but we probably don't mention them as frequently as we ought to. Um, in modern nursing practice. One of the most striking features of this piece of writing and of nurses' writings more generally was the tendency to focus not only on the treatment of the wound itself, but also on all of those measures which could be adopted to promote the general health and strength of the patient. As in earlier examples, the phenomenon intelligent nursing makes an appearance with the assumption that the readership will know what is meant by this phrase and yet it leaves the modern reader with an unanswered question, several unanswered questions. Was this intelligent nursing something that was acquired through experience of working with numerous individuals, building up expertise over several years? Or was it something that could be taught? The documentation of a corpus of knowledge for nurses can be viewed as a slow but steady process, which had begun in the late 19th century. Textbooks such as Eva Looker's General Nursing which entered its ninth edition just before the outbreak of war in 1914, and Isla Stewart's Practical Nursing, 
had been used as guides to nursing practice since the 1880s. Alongside these authoritative texts were more specialist outputs, such as Emily Stoney's Bacteriology for Nurses, one of the earliest attempts to synthesize scientific knowledge with nursing practice, which was first produced in the late 19th century. During the war itself, a number of texts were written by practicing nurses to support their colleagues in synthesizing their existing practice with newly emerging knowledge and to adapt to the conditions of war. Significant among these were the works of M.N. Oxford, a former sister of Guy's Hospital, and Minnie Goodnell, an American nurse whose textbook was widely circulated in Britain as well as the USA. The most detailed and comprehensive text was, however, a textbook of war nursing authored by London hospital-trained nurse Violetta Thurston, who is pictured here in her Russian Red Cross uniform. This text, which was published in 1917, contains not only information on the latest treatments for shock and wound sepsis, along with how to implement these, but also advice on how to set up a camp hospital and how to survive the physical and emotional stresses of war. Thurston had spent over two years as the county superintendent of the West Riding Nursing Association before accepting a position at the new civil hospital in Spezia, Italy, in 1913. She was, quote, a strong believer in the need for higher education of nurses and with other educationalists, a warm supporter of state registration for trained nurses. On the outbreak of war, she had led one of the first nursing units to enter Belgium, after being overtaken by the advancing German forces and deported to Denmark, Thurston had travelled to Russia via Sweden and Finland to offer her services to the Russian Red Cross. Invalided home with a shrapnel wound and pneumonia, Thurston had returned to active service at L'Hôpital de L'Océan-la-Panne, Belgium, after a period of convalescence. Her decision to distill her remarkable knowledge and experience into a textbook resulted in one of the most comprehensive books on war nursing produced during the 20th century. And this is um, an image, actually, of a wound irrigation technique, not Carol Dakin, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, but um, um, the irrigation of a wound, a foot wound. Um, impossible to know with what fluid, but it could be hypertonic saline solution or it could be sodium hypochlorite you know, under pressure through a syringe. And this is actually an image of this procedure taking place at L'Hôpital de L'Océan, one of the biggest hospitals, the biggest base hospital in Belgium. One of Thurston's achievements was to make medico-scientific knowledge relevant to nursing assessment and nursing practice. For example, she advised that when assessing a patient with wound shock, the nurse should firstly examine his physical condition, skin color, pulse, and respirations, to gain an insight into his physiological state. She then, however, takes the assessment further, advising the nurse to understand the person as an individual with a particular age, experience, and background. And I quote, an inexperienced boy going into battle for the first time, overtired, too excited, probably to eat beforehand, deafened by the thunder of heavy guns, terrified by the sights and sounds all around him, his friends perhaps killed at his side, will suffer more from shock with a comparatively small wound than will his more severely wounded comrade, who is older and more seasoned. Nurse writers such as Thurston saw it as part of their role to give their fellow nurses a clear insight into the knowledge bases in which their practice would be grounded. Not only would this make them safer, more enlightened practitioners, 
It would elevate their practice above that of a mere cipher following doctor's orders. This meant that Thurston, like other nurse writers, engaged with the prevailing medical controversies of the day. Since the mid-19th century, the professions of nursing and medicine had existed side by side. Medicine had acquired a professional register in Britain in 1858. Nursing, because of its female gendered status and because its reform movement and professionalization had begun later, was by far the weaker of the two. Its relationship with medicine had at times been an invidious one. And Ethel Bedford Fenwick, the editor of the BJN, was, um, had a tendency to take the discussions and debates about the relationship between nursing and medicine to a fairly controversial level. In 1902, in the first edition of the BJN, she'd expressed her wish that the medical profession should, quote, afford to the associated profession of nursing its intelligent moral support, a totally different thing from intolerant personal control. This sense in which nursing had to confront the assumption that it was inferior had an important influence on the way in which nurse writers engaged with medical controversy. As indicated earlier, one of the most controversial areas of medical treatment during the early months of the First World War was the treatment of infected wounds. Drawing upon their experience of dealing with clean gunshot wounds during the Second Anglo-Boer War, surgeons began by advocating conservative treatment, the application of a sterile dressing, which was not removed for several days. Within a few months, it became clear that wounds contracted by heavy artillery fire on the muddy, heavily manured fields of northern France and Flanders were very different from those encountered on the dry, dusty belt of South Africa. Bacteriological investigation showed that soil samples from these areas contained large numbers of anaerobic bacteria, causing a range of infectious diseases, among which the most serious were gas gangrene and tetanus. One influential school of thought, led by experts such as William Watson Chain and Sir Anthony Bowlby, advocated the rigorous use of antiseptics. Others continued for a time to advocate the conservative treatment. During the later months of 1914 and throughout 1915, controversy persisted as new treatments were tried by different surgeons. Nurses, in implementing surgical treatments, found themselves part of this process. Among the most significant of the prevailing treatments was the excision of massive areas of damaged tissue recommended by HMW Gray and the use of hypertonic saline solution advocated by Sir Almroth Wright. In 1915, the Carol Dakin treatment was developed. It's a slightly weird image of, the, of Carol Dakin taken from um, um, uh, an article in a journal written by Antoine Despages. Um, the Carol Dakin treatment was developed as a result of a partnership between two individuals working in a field hospital in Compiègne, supported by the Rockefeller Institute. The British scientist, Henry Dakin, had discovered that sodium hypochlorite had powerful antiseptic properties, while Frenchman, Dr. Alexis Carroll, invented an ingenious means of delivering this solution so that it continuously flowed through and soaked the tissues of deep, penetrating wounds. This innovation offered surgeons yet another opinion in what was by now quite a complex repertoire of treatments. The ways in which nursing journals and textbooks reported on these methods offer an intriguing insight into nursing perspectives on surgical treatment choices. A columnist in the BJN commented in April 1915 on the work of Drs. Carroll and Dakin in Compiègne 
and was reporting in August 1915 that both French and British medical scientists were positive about the use of Carol Dakin technique and that, quote, arrangements were being made at the Leeds University for preparing the antiseptic in considerable quantity for use in the military hospitals in this country, that is in Britain. And of course, as USOL, uh, the same um, fluid was being produced at Edinburgh University, or was discovered at Edinburgh University, as Edinburgh University's solution of Lyme. The Carol Dakin system of treatment soon came to be adopted in a number of casualty clearing stations, hospital trains and base hospitals, both on the Western Front and in Britain. The technique was described by Violetta Thurston as an ingenious solution to the problem of deep infected wounds. She described how the treatment began with a thorough washing of the wound, followed by its surgical cutting and trimming to ensure good drainage. Nerves and tendons were sutured and then the Carol tubes were put into position and the wound was irrigated under pressure every two hours. A bottle of Dakin's solution was hung by the patient's bedside and the valves in the rubber portions of the Carol tubes were opened, allowing gravity to push the solution into and through the wound cavity. There are numerous examples in the personal writings of nurses that Carol Dakin treatment was extensively used on the Western Front and that British nurses became very experienced in implementing it. Going back to L'Hôpital de l'Océan, Antoine Despages Hospital, um, it saw itself as one of the foremost uh, exponents of the Carol Dakin technique. The BJN continued to publish articles on Carol Dakin technique throughout the war. One published in March 1917 reproduced verbatim a lecture by Dr. Despages at the L'Hôpital de l'Océan, probably taken down by Violetta Thurston, who was working at, as matron at that hospital at the time. Another BJN article reproduced a, an excerpt from an article in the BMJ, offering advice to those implementing the treatment. In December 1917, the journal's prize essay question was, what do you know of the, the Carol Dakin treatment of septic wounds? It's a very open-ended question. What do you know of the Carol Dakin treatment of septic wounds? This yielded the view from the winner, Margaret Cornock, that the treatment is, quote, a thoroughly effective method for dealing with septic wounds and has proved of enormous value in saving the lives of numbers of soldiers. Going back uh, briefly to that uh, wound irrigation image at uh, L'Hôpital de L'Océan. By 1917, the Army Medical and Nursing Services had learned much from their three years' experience of dealing with devastating wound infections, such as gas, gangrene and tetanus. Thurston distilled this knowledge into a clear and precise chapter in her textbook of war nursing, observing that... The treatment of wounds has been revolutionized since the beginning of the war. She commented on two schools of thought that had existed at the outset of war, one which held that wounds should be left undisturbed while the general constitution was strengthened by good nutrition and rest. The other, the more radical school, believing in, quote, tremendous incisions, horizontal and transverse, making the drainage from, drainage from the wound as free as possible so that toxins or poisons formed by the bacteria might not be absorbed into the system. By 1917, alongside the use of a range of antiseptics, three other approaches were in use on various war fronts, depending on the preference of certain highly assertive surgeons. First, there was still the plan of no dressings, in which a loose but ample sterile dressing is put on the wound, the part well mobilised, and the whole left severely alone. The whole left severely alone. Second was 
Violetta Thurston said, Sir Almroth Wright's method of hypertonic saline treatment, still used in a number of British hospitals. Third was the dry method, which was extensively used on the Eastern Front, where Thurston had had experience. And here, patients might have a long journey following initial treatment at the front before reaching a base hospital. In this approach, the skin around the wound was cleansed with benzene or alcohol, the wound was painted with iodine, and then the hole was covered with a dry dressing and a large quantity of wool or sphagnum moss and then a firm bandage, but then again left alone until the patient got to the base hospital. Thurston offered an intriguing insight into the nurse's position vis-à-vis -vis the use of a range of very different treatments. Her first observation was that trained nursing sisters were well aware that the treatment applied often depended heavily on the opinion of the individual surgeon. She added significantly that as trained professionals, nurses would have their own opinions on the benefits and disadvantages of particular treatments. But she added in her textbook, it is probably unnecessary to remind any trained nurse that she is there to carry out treatment, not suggest it. Very few sisters would openly criticize any treatment offered by the surgeon, but there are some people who look their disapproval of methods to which they are not accustomed. Loyalty is the first of virtues, and sisters should be very careful never to give the impression that they disagree with the surgeon for whom they are working. The soldier is one of the quickest people in the world to discover any want of harmony, and certainly the feeling that the best possible is not being done for him would react on his mental condition, retard his recovery, and make him anxious and suspicious. Thurston's astringent comments illustrate both the acumen of the nurse and her role in medical treatments at that time. The power structure of the British hospital is accepted and is seen as being more significant in a military environment where discipline is even more important. Loyalty is the primary virtue. And yet Thurston's arguments are highly ambiguous. Although overtly asserting the preeminence of the surgeon in decision-making, she expresses numerous views, hints and opinions, which seem to imply that she believes the nurse herself carries a full armory of judgments, which she may sometimes feel obliged to su suppress. In October 1917, the BJN published a glowing review of Thurston's book, referring to it as the first book which provides the trained nurse on war service with a professional textbook dealing with the special branch in which she is engaged, which has developed so much during the present war. The BJN's strong endorsement of a textbook of war nursing probably had much to do with the way in which the book emphasized the need for practicing nurses to, be, to thoroughly understand the scientific principles behind their work. It's interesting that Thurston also authored articles in the BJN which strongly endorsed nurse registration, thus aligning herself with the BJN editor, Ethel Bedford Fenwick, Ethel Gordon Fenwick. Medical innovation in the early 20th century was highly dependent upon the individual, individualistic efforts of physicians and surgeons. Both the textbook of war nursing and the BJN emphasized the need for both intelligent practice and loyalty to the surgeon. Professional nurses have been taught during their training to offer, quote, intelligent obedience to the doctor's orders. And this concept is an interesting one. The phrase intelligent obedience appears in a lot of textbooks. Such obedience was a complex phenomenon. One of the most powerful illustrations of this can be found in the way in which these controversies between different medical theories were presented in detail in the nursing press. 
Nurses did not want to simply offer their surgeon colleagues blind obedience. Rather, they wished to understand thoroughly any treatments they were consenting to carry out. Nursing journals did not therefore shy away from reporting on medical controversy. They did so in neutral or overtly positive tones, yet their willingness to engage with medical innovation was part of their own presentation of nursing knowledge as scientific knowledge, as well as in an indicator that nurses' perceptions of their role went well beyond blind obedience to medical authority. So to conclude, the professional writings of nurses speak eloquently of the intricacy and attention to detail with which their work was infused. And this paper has interpreted these writings in terms of an emergent understanding of the science behind nursing work. A man with an injury was, for example, much more than a wound to be dressed. Close attention to providing cleanliness, rest, and a strengthening diet that would enable tissue repair was an essential part of his regime and was recognised by both nurse authors and medical writers in the British Journal of Nursing as, quote, and this quote was often used, intelligent nursing. Nurses saw themselves as the guardians of their patients' well-being rather than just executors of orders. The ways in which a small group of nurses were working to present scientific knowledge are particularly well illustrated by the ways in which they engaged with these treatment controversies in wartime. These controversies came at a time when nurses were not only grappli grappling with the horrors of industrial warfare, but also consciously engaging in their own struggle for recognition by campaigning for a professional register, a campaign which succeeded in achieving its goal on December the 23rd, 1919, with the passing into law of the Nurses' Registration Act. Nurses' writings at this time illuminate not only their conscientious attention to the needs of their patients, but also their drive for professional recognition and their confident assertion of the scientific basis of their knowledge. Thank you very much. Well, Christine, thank you very much indeed for that very powerful presentation, which is from a perspective we don't always hear. Uh, one guy you obviously did think did a good job was Sir Anthony Bowlby, and mm -hmm. Mick Crumpton pointed out to me that there is a chair with his name on the back in the corridor just out there. So some of the surgeons did take notice of what was going on. Almoth Wright can't be anybody's hero, because remember, he was the man who stopped Fleming working on penicillin, because it obviously wasn't going to be any use to anybody. No, just, just use hypertonic saline for everything. Just use hypertonic saline. <coughs> Questions from the floor? Can we all wait for the microphone? Because, you know, the people behind can't hear. Very close to mine. Is that better? Sorry. It's said in my family that my great-grandmother died of typhus as a result of nursing soldiers who'd come back to this country carrying the disease with them. Is that something which happened? I wasn't aware that typhus was one of the big diseases and, and, that, and that it could be brought back and so people are healed of it. Yes, um, yes it was. Typhus was an important killer during the First World War. Yes, a number of soldiers and yes, some nurses died of typhus fever. Um, if it was brought back to Britain, it would have had to be brought back by lice um, in amongst the clothing or the bedding 
of soldiers brought back quite a long distance, actually, possibly from the trenches through casualty clearing station, hospital train, uh, base hospital in northern France, hospital ship. It, it's going to take many days, actually, to, to bring that infection back to Britain. But I can see that that could have happened during big rushes of casualties, because usually um, a patient would be very thoroughly cleaned up in a casualty clearing station. But if you happened to be suffering from typhus fever and actually have lice on your body and in your uniform and maybe have a wound as well on, say, the 1st of July or the 2nd of July um, 1916, the first few days of the Battle of the Somme, then you're just going to be rushed back. And there may not be time, if your injury is minor, there may not be time to deal with it at all in the casualty clearing station. You may then just be put on a hospital train. Uh, there may not be time to deal with it very thoroughly there either. You might be still in your muddy uniform by the time you reach a base hospital. And um, if you're considering yourself lucky and you go straight on a hospital train at, La at the hospital ship at La Havre, because some patients were put right straight on the ships in that harbour rather than put into base hospitals, general hospitals in northern France. Yeah, you might get back to Southampton or get back to Britain pretty quickly. So that would be feasible. But you'd have to be transporting the lice, I think, to, uh, to actually um, infect somebody with the typhus in this country. It was in the West Riding, so the, yeah. Just about, yeah, I think, you know, then you'd have had to be on another hospital train as well. Uh, I'd provide some primary evidence there. My father-in-law was refused entry to his parents' home because he was <laughs> lousy when he came home on leave during the First World War, covered in mud and dirt. Question at the back. My, Brian Morgan. <coughs> Am I on? Yes. Uh, Christine, I worked as a plastic surgeon for many years. You've extolled the virtue of uh, Dakin's and Usol in the First World War. And I'm really wondering whether you could give me an explanation why in the 1990s the nursing staff virtually uh, stopped me using uh, Usol and it brought in... Uh, as a result, a whole lot of very expensive proprietary uh, treatments for wounds. Sorry, um, a bit of it, but it's something that I feel terribly angry about still. I might have been pushing antibiotics as a, an alternative at the time, perhaps. Um, they probably read something in a nursing journal. Um, yeah, I, I think, did they say why they, um, sorry, I, I know you've relinquished the mic. But did they give you a rationale for persuading you not to use USOL? Because my understanding at the time, I would have been a very newly qualified nurse at that time, but I'm sure somebody told me that it was really too toxic and um, it was toxic to the liver and kidneys and we, we really shouldn't. But I, I used USOL as a student nurse in the 1980s and it worked incredibly well. It, what actually happened was there was a paper, and I'm afraid I cannot remember, by someone, a uh, scientist down in Bristol, Bath area, who, as you say, reported that uh, by using USOL, you were actually killing a lot of the uh, uh, cells uh, that were helping the wound to recover. Uh, and uh, th this was a very bad thing. I think there was a whole misunderstanding because any uh, medication you use has a downside to it. And the downside for USOL uh, may be that you kill the odd cell, but you actually keep the wound very clean. Mm. But that's what, what started it. And it was a misunderstanding, I think, and we yeah. never managed to change it. 
Yeah, somebody scared me. If, if I had to kind of give a, a personal rationale for why I, I felt we stopped using it in the 1990s, uh, somebody certainly scared me um, with the idea that it was very bad systemically. It wasn't just that it was killing other healthy cells in the wound, but you know, I never actually went, I never researched that subject myself. Um, yeah, I can't help wondering whether it might become uh, rather useful and maybe popular again um, now that we're really recognizing that we, we really must use antibiotics less frequently. I don't, I don't know. Yes, you saw. speculation. You could, you could smell it doing good, couldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> As a clinician, Particularly I loved it. mixed yeah. with paraffin and yeah. gauze. Wonderful. Yeah. Yes. Question. Yeah. Microphone. Yeah. One observation, the, some of the surgeons in World War I discovered that patients who came in with maggot-infested wounds did not have gas gangrene, yeah. which is a very interesting observation given mm -hmm. that today we're now using maggots for exactly that purpose because they eat dead tissue and yeah. it's the dead tissue that harbors the infection. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, one of my PhD students looked at um, wound infection during the Second World War and... Um, he commented that a lot of the wounds in the desert war, uh, a lot of the patients came back with maggots in there, with maggots under their bandages in the wounds, and yeah, that those wounds did better. But the nurses still made sure that they got rid of the maggots because that was dirty. You know, you cannot have a dirty wound, and if there are maggots there, you know, no, we're not going to use those. It's matter out of place. You know, so it was interesting to see their response to those wounds, that they recognised that the wounds seemed to do better, um, but they were too wary to, to actually implement that as a treatment. Question at the back. Yeah. I'm not sure if this is on, Christine, but could you... Um, is it on? It is. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Um, you haven't really dwelt very much on wide excision debridement, and I think you've got to include that a wee bit, and the nurses had such a huge impact in performing these dressings. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about what they used to pack it with and whether the Carol Dakin solution used to lift off the dressings and how they coped with those very large incisions that were necessary to prevent mixed infection. Yes, yeah, it was, it was Gray, really, who um, published uh, the most influential work on the need for the massive excisions to get rid of um, the infected, all of the infected tissue around the wound. Just get rid of all the infection, take away as much as you possibly feel you, know, feel you can, kind of beyond the infection even. Um, and yeah, uh, so nurses were left with, and surgeons themselves, because the surgeons often did a lot of the um, complex dressings if they had time. Um, they were left with um, huge gaping wounds to deal with, yes. And uh, that's why the nurses liked Carol Dakin treatment so much, because you actually had the tubes packed into the wound, um, and you then had the wound dressed with a, an aseptic, using an aseptic technique and bandaged. Um, and what the nurse, the, the main work of the nurses was to come along and open up the valves to actually drain the sodium hypochlorite through the wound. But they also had to actually change dressings at least once a day. So with very large wounds and often multiple wounds, because a lot of these patients had not just one wound, but several wounds, because when, once you've got flying shrapnel, you know, you're not just going to likely to get one wound. Um, so yeah, the workload was terrific actually, it was enormous because you had to unwrap these wounds, you know, take down all the dressings, check that the carol tubes are in place, 
uh, swab the wound uh, as well as irrigating the wound. Um, if you don't have, if you're not using a wound irrigation technique, then the swabbing is very onerous because you're having to remove all the dead tissue and pus. Nurses also probed wounds um, for bits of bone, bits of uh, debris that were working their way to the surface. Um, so a complex wound dressing of one wound could take an hour to perform. And I'm not sure how they got through the work, actually, because in a base hospital in northern France, you know, one trained nurse might have a ward of 50 patients and a staff nurse on a shift to help her and then maybe a handful of VADs. The VADs ended up doing a lot of wound care, actually, uh, which they were usually very keen and very eager to do. Uh, but that caused the nurses a lot of anxiety because um, they knew that the VADs didn't have the background that they had in aseptic technique and the knowledge you know, to actually be able to perform those techniques as well as they would wish. Um, so, yeah, I think, the answer, I think your question was about how much pressure they were under. And I think the pressure was enormous because, yes, the wounds were enormous. mentioned at the beginning um, our perception of perhaps an antagonistic relationship between VADs and um, mm -hmm. nurses and I probably have that impression from watching the series The Crimson Field earlier this year and I was just wondering um, kind of where you stand on perhaps series like that that give us a different perspective as David said and are exposing the public to that but may not be that realistic because I know it attracted quite a lot of criticism and hasn't been recommissioned. Yeah, um, well, I'll stick my head on the block and say that I like, uh, I like the Crimson Field. Um, <coughs> the reason I like it is that um, it mostly um, present, it has a positive portrayal of nurses, particularly in the form of the matron of the, the base hospital. There's a lot wrong with it, okay? There's a lot about it that wasn't authentic. Um, but the matron of the hospital, matron Grace Carter, was a very positive figure, and her relationship with the VADs was, mm, yeah, it was, there was obvious tension there, and that was used to try and heighten the drama, clearly, you know, of, of the first few episodes of the series. But I thought that that role was so cleverly played by that actress, um, Hermione Norris, that she really brought out the, the kind of stress and the pressure that a nurse like that would have been under. Um, trying to actually look after these VADs and appearing to be bullying them and maybe occasionally kind of crossing that line. It was a bit bullying when she forced the VAD to wash all the rose water off using this horrible green soap, you know, whatever. But she was actually, um, I think the series portrayed her, the programme portrayed her as actually caring about them, caring about the patients and having a really difficult job in holding the whole... Um, enterprise of the hospital together um, and that that was no mean feat even though actually in the crimson field it really looked like a very small encampment didn't it you know you didn't get the sense of what she was really doing uh, which was possibly looking after well over a thousand beds uh, in a tented hospital so yeah I suppose I'm saying I've got some mixed feelings about it and I know it did come in for a lot of criticism but um, I'm I'm pleased with anything that actually presents nurses to a large public and between four and six million people watch that and just um, invites people to, to think about what it might, some of the work might have been like for the nurses. And is, you know, obviously with the exception of uh, Sister Quayle, who you, know, you just have to have a character that you love to hate, don't you? But with, with that exception, the nurses were portrayed very positively. 
Thank you. One point that uh, came out this morning, sorry, when Barry Jackson was talking, was that, in fact, no doctors were killed in the Crimean War. But in the First World War, this must have been the first time that nurses were in significant numbers in combat zones because of the long-range artillery yeah. and, of course, the bombing. And if you <laughs> visit First World War cemeteries, you often see graves of nurses in them. Mm -hmm. Is there any uh, data on the casualty rates amongst those who nursed in France and Flanders? Yeah, there are some data, but um, it's actually notoriously difficult to pin down the casualty rates. We think slightly something over 300 nurses died as a result of their active service. The majority or the largest group from infectious diseases, a lot of them from Spanish flu in 1918 and 19 actually, um, but significant numbers died on torpedoed or mined ships, significant numbers drowned. There were 10 New Zealand nurses on a troop ship called the Marquette in the eastern Mediterranean uh, in 1917 on their way to Salonika. Um, and that ship was torpedoed and sank. It's, apparently it sank in 15 minutes and 10 of the nurses died. Um, and a number of nurses died yeah, in casualty clearing stations as a result of shelling. I think, you know, accidental shelling because casualty clearing stations were located very close to railheads. That's where you have to have them so you can get the patients onto the trains quickly. Um, but when the German artillery was shelling the railheads or shelling the observation balloons or the ammunition dumps, you know, those CCSs were really very close. Um, so a number of nurses were killed, um, were hit by pieces of, pieces of shrapnel. Um, there's one very poignant story, um, the one most people know about is Nellie Spindler, who was killed while she was sleeping in her tent. She'd been on night duty and she was asleep in her tent at 10 a.m. Um, this was during the barrage, um, during the Battle of Passchendaele in 1917. Um, and she was just lying in her tent asleep and a piece of shrapnel just ripped through the tent and then just ripped straight through her body, just below her heart and uh, she died within minutes. Um, there's a very poignant uh, description of that in uh, Kate Luard's book, Unknown Warriors, about how the medical officers were kind of rushing to her help and uh, trying to save her, but she, she just uh, hemorrhaged and, uh, and died very quickly. So, yeah, they were in quite dangerous scenarios and hundreds, you know, we're not looking at the same sort of casualty figures as for combatants, obviously nothing like those millions, but um, uh, hundreds of nurses died on all... On and, th and nurses died on all fronts. And of course, one very famous one of the statue beside the portrait gallery who was shot. Oh, Edith Cavill, Cavill, who wasn't a military <laughs> nurse, was a civilian nurse. No, indeed nurse. not, but uh, there we go. Any more questions for Christine? Well, that's a wonderful way to finish the first session of the afternoon. Thank you very much, everybody. Back at quarter to four.